Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Like I told the group last night, um, because the next section we're going to get to after tonight's study is on divorce, as you see in your scriptures, and that is such a huge topic, I'm not even going to start into it tonight. So whenever we finish this section, we're done. If we get done early, Merry Christmas. If, if we go the full length of time, Merry Christmas. All right. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, as we saw in our last study, Jesus is revealing the heart of man. This is where our real sin issue is. And I want you to allow the scriptures to kind of get that sinking into our hearts today. The, our real sin issue and our real sin problem is in our hearts. Put a bookmark here. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, we're going to read one verse, but I want you to put a finger or a piece of paper there because we'll be coming back to it in a little bit. In Jeremiah chapter 17, look at verse 9. Look what the scripture says here. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Some translations say, and, and, and this one goes on and says, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Some of your translations will say, and beyond cure. That's pretty good. I like that. The heart is desperately sick. It's beyond cure. It's deceitful above all things. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Again, keep a finger in Matthew, uh, Jeremiah 17. We'll be coming back to it in just a minute. Go to Matthew 15 and look at verses 15 through 20. Peter said to Jesus, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And here Jesus is again clarifying, look, it's not what comes into us that makes us unclean, it's what comes out of us. But where it comes out of is the heart, and that's the heart that is desperately sick. So when people only look at their outward actions and don't acknowledge their heart issue, they actually may even fool themselves into thinking that they're keeping God's law when they're not. And that's why Jesus is dealing with the, the commandments from the law of God. He's been laying this foundation in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he moves into this section where he talks about how he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he says, hey, I, you know that it's been said, and he quotes from the Old Testament law, but then he'll go on and say, but I say, and he'll clarify it. And as we looked at last time, he can do that because he is the word. But when he does, he takes them to a deeper Understanding. Last time we were together, we looked at when he said, you know, you shall not commit murder. But I say, if you've been angry with your brother, you've done it in your heart. And tonight, as we take a look, he deals with the whole commandment that you shall not commit adultery. And then he goes on and says, but I say, and he talks about how if you look lustfully upon a woman, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But what I want you to look at, and I'm going to take some time to show you some scriptures that deal with this, is 
If we just try to measure, well, I think I did pretty good, and we look at our outward actions and don't really allow the Spirit to show us our hearts, we may fool ourselves into thinking we're okay when we're not. Would we not agree that most of the world today, if you asked them, are you going to hell, they'd say no, because I'm a pretty good person. I, I think I'm okay. They haven't really allowed the Spirit to show them the depth of their sin and their heart issue. And go back to Jeremiah 17, look at verse 10. In Jeremiah 17, verse 10, right after it says that the heart's deceitful, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God is the one who tests the heart. In Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, what did David say at the very end? He said, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, though. I want to show you something interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul had been dealing with a problem repeatedly of the fact that there were times that the churches were, some of the churches were questioning his ability or his right, if you will, I guess would be a better word, to be an apostle over them because they questioned his apostleship. And he had to spend a lot of time defending his apostleship. And in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, look at what he says. He said, this is how one should regard us, he's talking about the apostles, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required that of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For, <coughs> excuse me, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. There's a lot here. Paul said, as you guys are all judging me, first off, you got to understand, you guys need to just see us as servants of God, tools and instruments of the Lord. <coughs> and every steward, every servant is supposed to be found faithful. But you know what? I'm not going to worry about whether or not you judge me or whether or not I'm judged by any human court. In fact, he said, I don't even judge myself. Now, to be honest with you, I wish this was something that I had understood when I was a pastor. I, I spent most of my time in my years of being a pastor worried about what everybody is, was thinking. I was concerned about making everybody happy. And I spent all my time trying to put out the fires and make everybody happy. And by the way, when you try to make everybody happy, you're going to make the Lord unhappy. Paul said, I'm not worried about whether or not I'm judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. He said, I don't even know of anything against myself. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. But then he said, what? Look closely. He said, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I actually think that the scripture teaches that we shouldn't be quick to make judgments about the people around us. Now, the Bible does teach that there are times that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, if you see your brother in a caught, it actually says in a transgression, caught in a sin, you who are spiritual go to restore them gently. But it's not a judgment. And actually, we shouldn't be spending a lot of time pointing out everyone else's faults. And one of the problems we have in our churches today is a lot of people, we actually make judgments about people's motives. Well, I know why she's really doing that. No, you don't. You really don't. And actually, we usually make wrong judgments half the time, don't we? 
And let's just flip it around. There's actually people in the churches that we think are wonderful. And then later on we find out they were living a double life and we had no idea. Have you ever seen that happen? How many times have we been floored by someone that we revered and respected? And next thing you know, we find out they were having a, an affair or whatever else was going on or had a private drinking problem. And folks, let me just tell you something. God is the one who searches hearts. God is the one who will speak to you about your heart. He's the one who's going to speak to the other people about their hearts. Stop taking his job. Now, to reveal the heart then, Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. Verse 14, where in the Ten Commandments, it said, you shall not commit adultery. But then he says, but I say, if you've thought lustfully about a woman... You've already broken God's law in your heart, even if you never acted on your thoughts physically. Why? Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks where? God looks at your heart. I remember years ago, I was being interviewed uh, by a, a church in Louisiana to be a youth pastor. We're talking 30 years ago. And they were interviewing me to be a youth pastor. And... Uh, they asked me, they said, have you ever committed adultery? I said, probably a thousand times. And their eyes got huge. They were like, what? I said, according to Jesus' definition, as a young man, I had to struggle with that. And I have to be honest with you, I'm not innocent in my heart. Now, are you asking me if I've ever physically done that? No, I haven't done that. But this is the same church that asked me how I felt about mixed bathing. Now, do you even know what I'm talking about? Some of you laugh, some of you don't. Some of you don't understand. Some, uh, let me just clarify for you. Uh, when they asked me, how do I feel about mixed bathing? I was like, well, I'm against that. What they said, guys and, I thought they were saying guys and girls taking a bath together. What they meant was guys and girls swimming in the same hole. And I said, well, I'm against mixed bathing because I didn't know what it was. And they're like, well, good, because we are too. What they meant was, guys, if I'm a youth pastor, the, the men and the girls aren't supposed to be swimming in the same pool or, or whatever. So if there's a pool party, there's a girl's, girl's pool party and there's a guy's pool party. Jesus says, if you thought lustfully about a woman, you've already shown what's in your heart. Now, being tempted is not a sin. If it were... Jesus sinned. Remember Hebrews chapter four, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 15? He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So being tempted is not a sin. But whenever we let our desires take root in any way, we head down a path from temptation to sin to death. When it comes to pretty girls around and the struggle with lust, as you know, in this day and age, it's, we're being bombarded with it. It's everywhere. It's in commercials. It's in advertisements. Actually, nowadays, if you want to look at pornography, all you'd have to do is have an, have an iPhone or anything like that. When Back in the day, if you wanted to go look at a naked woman, you had to go to a store and buy a magazine from someone in a brown wrapper, and someone had to see you buy it. And nowadays, it's everywhere. Billy Graham put it real well. He said, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest in my hair. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verses 14 and 15. Look at the progression here. Verse 14 of James chapter 1, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? 
His own desire, yeah, his lust. Then desire or lust, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, we're going to try to answer a question that some of you have. And I've been asked this question as a pastor for years. I was asked this question when I was a youth pastor by young people. The question is this. So when does the temptation make that switch to lust and sin? How, how long do you think on it before the temptation actually becomes sin? You understand the question? Where does it make that switch? Now, my answer is going to surprise you. I'm going to, let me just ask, has anybody else thought that same question? All right, I love you, but I'm going to ask you this question. Why did you ask that question? Uh, well, here's why. There's two main reasons why we ask that question. One of them's tied to legalism. We want to justify ourselves. We want to find out if we've crossed that line. And listen to another reason why we ask that question. We want to know how close can I get to sin without stepping over the line? That's what we're really asking. How close can I get to sin before I step over the line? What I want to talk to you about tonight is the opposite. Let's not focus on when does it become sin. I'm not going to give you an answer. I think if anybody did, they'd be lying to you. I think it's tied, kind of like my wife brought it out in last night's study. It's kind of like the age of accountability. I believe the Bible teaches there is such a thing as the age of accountability. But what age is it? Is it 10? Is it 12? Is it 13? Is it 6? It's different for each person. If I were to tell you, here's when it turns from temptation to sin, you all would want to know, how close can I get? The Bible says that we should actually be focusing on how close can I get to God? And actually, if you understand the scriptures, they teach us to stay away from that line. Why do we even know or know where that line is? Go nowhere near it. Like the man that said, I don't care when I die. I just want to know where. I'm going to die because then I'll just never go there. You know what I'm saying? And he goes, like, when I die, I don't need to know. I just want to know where I'm going to die, and I will never, ever go there. Well, it's the same thing. We don't need to know where that line is, folks. Stop asking that question. Let's make sure we never even get close to it. The best move in this area, according to the scriptures, would be to guard your heart. To guard your heart by focusing on Jesus and not focusing on your sin. Remember the passage in 2 Timothy that talked about flee youthful lusts? You remember what I'm talking about? We're to flee youthful. We're not even get anywhere near it. We're to run from it. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. Look at verses 20 through 23. Proverbs chapter 4, starting in verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them where? Within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart. Some translations say guard your heart with all vigilance or vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. 
We're to actually not be focusing on how close we can get to sin without stepping over the line. We should be focusing on how close we can get to Jesus. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 puts it this way. So I say, Paul said, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We all want to know, when does the temptation turn to sin? I remember sitting in a seminary class and one guy asking this question. If Jesus never sinned, did he know at which bite or which next forkful was going to turn into gluttony? And he would go, and I put it down at that moment. We sit there and we want to argue about when did he know he went from enjoying his food to gluttony and all this kind of stuff. Do you understand the silliness of the question? It shows our hearts. It, the question itself shows our hearts. We're not asking how close can we get to Jesus so we never get anywhere near that line from temptation to sin. We want to see how close we can get to that line. That's a problem. We need to learn how to guard our hearts. So in chapter 4, go over to Proverbs chapter 7. There's a warning here about the adulteress. I'm not going to read the whole section. You can go back and look at it later on. But look closely at chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump down to the end of the chapter. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Jump. Then next the section we're going to skip over here goes into all the detail of how she lays her trap for the guy. And then look at verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Let not your what turn aside to her ways? Heart. He doesn't say don't let your actions act on it. Don't let your heart even go there. Don't even play with it. By the way, when the nation of Israel was told by God that they're going to go into the land and destroy these enemies and all this, he told them, when you go into the land and you wipe them all out like I've told you to, you're going to find their idols laying there. Don't gaze at them. Don't look at them. Don't even inquire about them. Destroy them. Why? Because he knows our hearts. If we get even just flirting with it, all of a sudden, we end up in that situation. As a pastor for years, I can tell you that all these people that ended up in adulterous relationships never intended to. They didn't guard their hearts. Men would go on business trips for their business, and the company would send them with another woman, and they would be on a trip somewhere. She might have his room, and she might have hers, but they'd have meals together in the hotel. Next thing you know, without guarding their hearts, they ended up down that road. They probably thought, well, we're not doing anything wrong. We've never crossed the line from temptation to sin. We've gotten real close to it. Don't even go there. That's why, and as a traveling preacher, I've really had to work hard to let churches know, hey, when you have someone come pick me up at the airport, a lot of times now I'll just get my own rental car. But a lot of times I'll say, don't send a woman to come pick me up. I can't ride in a car by myself with a woman. Remember how Pence got in all that trouble with, from, the, from the world because he made that statement about he would never do that, never eat a meal with alone with a woman if it wasn't his wife and all this. And the world was like, what's your problem? Well, the man's wise. That's what his problem is. And we don't like that. 
I would actually, uh, the, every church that I was a pastor of, when I became pastor, the first thing I did was take my door to my office off the hinges until somebody put a window, a big window in it. Because I never wanted to be alone in the office with a woman counseling her where someone couldn't see in at all times what was going on. And I went without a door in my office until someone put a window in the door. And actually, over the years, as I got wiser, I stopped counseling. You know why? Lots of reasons. One, I'm not good at it. <clears throat> you come to me for counseling, I'm going to preach at you. My wife's back here nodding her head. I'm not a good counselor. But it also, I also realized it hindered my preaching. Well, God's called me to preach and teach his word. And as I walk through, as a pastor, books of the Bible, verse by verse, and take them through the books of the Bible, if you had just met with me and shared with me this personal, intimate struggle in your family, and it just so happened next Sunday, we're dealing with that topic, I was all worried that you'd be thinking that I'm airing your dirty laundry in front of everybody. But if I didn't ever counsel with you, you would never, even though we hit right on where God was dealing with you, it hindered my preaching. Plus, I also found there are people more gifted than me and capable, and I sent people off. And another reason was there's a thing called transference. Some of you understand what this is. Some of you may not. Psychologists understand. And as a lady would come to me to talk to me about her husband who was just not there for her or whatever. He was abusive or a bum or whatever. And she sat in my office and I was nicely dressed and I have a degree and I listened. Next thing you know, I became attractive to her. And the temptation as well in reverse, I have learned I'm staying away from that. So if anybody want me to come talk you through something, don't waste your time. I'm not being rude. I'm being wise. I stay away from that stuff. We didn't name the ministry just a preacher for no reason. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Look at verses 13 through 18. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 13 through 18. God says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for the land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your, there it is again, heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he'll shut up the heavens and there'll be no rain in the land, will yield no fruit and you'll perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. I'm going to give you a little quiz. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. You don't like quizzes, Timothy? Then I really want to give you a quiz now. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Go to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The Hebrew writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, listing the people he just spoke about in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Bible says that we are to lay aside every sin that so easily entangles us, and we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. Which do you focus on more? Do you focus on laying aside the sin, or do you focus more on your fixing your eyes on Jesus? And if we're honest with ourselves, most of us have spent most of our time as Christians focusing on laying aside the sin. We've got it backwards. Because if you focus on laying aside the sin, you've got two problems. One, where have you just focused now? The sin. And is the sin action the problem? What's the problem? The heart. Listen to me. So I say, walk in the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For years, I read Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And I, as a young man, focused on laying aside the sin. Man, I got to stop doing that. All right, I'm going to do better. All right, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be whatever the, that is. That's what my focus was. Oh, by the way, how do you think I did? Same as you probably. I'm learning the scripture teaches to fix my eyes on Jesus. Oh, did you see what he did, how he did it? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did he focus on defeating sin and winning in tempt, against temptation? He didn't focus on the sin. He focused on the Father. John chapter 6, verse 63 says this. Jesus says, my words are spirit and they are life. The flesh is no help at all. He also told them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 41, when he was praying in the garden, he says, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? It's weak. Folks, that's why he was teaching them. How do you have victory over temptation? You talk to the father. You focus on the father. You just say, Lord, I'm looking to you right now. I need a victory over this. Let me give you an example from my wife and I's experience. She's here so I can make her red in the face tonight. But when we were dating, we, praise God, by his grace, were virgins when we got married, just like the Bible said. Does that mean we were never tempted? Well, we were tempted a lot. I mean, look at me. You, you, can't, you, 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 can't, you, you can understand why she had this struggle. We would go on a date. And then sometimes we would go and sit in the front of my pickup truck and we might kiss. And as we did, the temptation to go further became very, very strong. But we learned early in our relationship to, in those times, not try to stop sinning, but actually run to Jesus. You see, if we tried to stop sinning, we could have sat there and figured, well, if we do this, is that sin? Remember how that whole thing when Clinton was president? Is this sin? Well, I didn't inhale. We always look for that line. If we had tried to say no to sin and focus on the sin, we would have tried to find out what was legal and not legal. But what we did is we would stop and we would pray out loud. And our prayers would be similar to this. Lord Jesus, Right now, I'm tempted to go further than you have said we should in your word until we're married. 
as much as I love Becky right now and I want to show her more, I love you more than I love Becky. Give us your grace. And I can promise you, my wife will tell you, something happened in that truck where we still were able to, we didn't like, well, we need to go home. No, we continued the date, but the temptation went away as we focused on Jesus. He was so good. And by his grace, we can actually look at our kids and say, we did wait. How many parents have had to say, well, we didn't, but you should. We have the blessing of being able to say to them, by God's grace, it is possible to be done. If you walk in the spirit, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. And the rest of these verses in this section we're studying, Jesus then says, well, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and so on. Let me read it to you again. Let's start there in verse uh, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members or your body parts than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your body parts than your whole body go into hell. So let me ask you this question. With all that we have just learned about sin being rooted in our our hearts was Jesus teaching that self-mutilation can cure our lust. He couldn't have been teaching that here's how you handle it. You take the eye out and then you'll be fine. No, um, because if it's in my heart, whether I can see or not, I'm still going to deal with those issues. And cutting off my hand isn't going to stop the sin. So he wasn't teaching that. He was using graphic hyperbole to demonstrate the seriousness of sin, the sins of lust and evil desire. He really wants people to understand this is serious. In other words, hell is so severe and torturous that you would rather go to heaven with body parts missing than to hell with all your parts intact. And by the way, this isn't the only time Jesus said this. You're going to find, let me show you a couple. Jesus said this more than once. Here we see Matthew 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. Isn't that interesting? It's necessary that temptations come. You remember our study earlier? Why did God send the law? Yeah, definitely so we know we need a Savior. Remember Romans chapter 5, verse 20? The law was added so the trespass would increase. He knew that temptation was there, and actually it's necessary that temptations come because the temptation, and then how we respond to it, reveals our sin problem. It's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Go to Mark chapter 9. Here we have Mark's account of what Jesus was just saying in chapter 9 verses 42 through 48. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... 
It'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Again, Jesus is very clearly saying, look, this is serious stuff, folks. Don't just gloss over it and think, well, it's no real big deal. It's not that big of a deal. Sin is serious. That's how serious it is. Jesus would use this graphic hyperbole to, to show how serious sin is. But if you had eyes to see and ears to hear, and you'd been listening to the teaching of Jesus, you would respond and say, Jesus, you must be saying something else here because if my problem's in my heart, taking my hand off or my eye out, it's not going to fix it. My actions just reveal where my sin is. Making it so that I can't act on it anymore isn't going to make me okay because the problem's in my heart. So here's the question. How do we deal with this sin problem then? This problem that's in our hearts and not in our hands or our feet. How do we deal with this sin problem that's in our heart? Well, I can't wait to show you. And I can't wait to show you that it's been in the Old Testament all along. I'm going to show you some New Testament passages in a second. But it's been in the Old Testament all along. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. By the way, as valuable as protections on your internet may be, is that going to solve the problem? Because if the problem's in your heart, you're going to find a way to find it. You'll just go to the neighbor's house. You'll find somebody who doesn't have the protection on theirs. Or You understand what I'm saying? We think, oh, we just put all these protections in place. We'll be safe. You're not dealing with the problem. You're dealing with the cobweb. You're not dealing with the spider. We got to deal with the spider. The spider is the heart. Ezekiel 36, look at verses 26 and 27. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. Remember the other one? It's beyond cure. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to control you to obey me. Doesn't that sound awesome? Wouldn't that be great? Well, it's available to each of us who are Christians. Doesn't it say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Folks, if you're still struggling with sin, and we all still sin, but if you're struggling and losing, you don't understand that you're a new creation. Listen, let me say it to you this way. As a believer, if you sin today, you're sinning against your nature. You can't say, well, <laughs> I'm only human. No, you're not. 
You've been given a new heart. You're a new creation. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 7, as he said, I things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? And then, of course, he says Jesus. But he also made this statement twice. He said, therefore, when I sin as a believer, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. doesn't mean he was innocent and I can do whatever I want because it's just sin in my body. That's the Gnostic teaching that was going around at this time. But he was pointing out that when I sin now, I'm sinning against my nature. It's no longer me doing it because I'm a new creation. And we need to learn how to walk daily, Romans 12, 1 and 2, lay our flesh on the altar, renew our minds, and daily walk in the Spirit. And as we learn to walk with Jesus, that new heart that he's given us begins to take rule in our life. And these issues go away. Oh, don't think for a second that you'll get to a certain point where you'll never be tempted again. I used to think that. When I was younger, I used to think, man, I can't wait until I get to that point where I'll be so close to Jesus that I'll never be tempted. Well, hang on. Was Jesus close to the Father? Was he tempted? See, I used to think that the temptations would go away. And it hit me one day as I was reading about Jesus in the garden being tempted not to go to the cross. And it hit me. If Jesus, even to the last hours of his life, was tempted, I'm always going to be tempted. And I will. But I'm going to guard my heart by giving it to Jesus and walking with Jesus. Go to Psalm 51. Listen closely. It's a very familiar passage, but I don't want you to tune out because you know it so well. David is writing after his sin with Bathsheba. Oh, and by the way, let me just point something out to you that you might not have ever noticed. When David committed his sin with Bathsheba, was he immediately remorseful? No, he wasn't. When David tried to cover up his sin by having Uriah sleep with his wife, was he remorseful? No. Was David remorseful and convicted when he got him drunk and hoped he'd stumble home to cover up what he had done? No. It wasn't until Nathan the prophet comes and tells the story that David's indignant. The guy that did that should die. And then through the Spirit, God speaks through Nathan and says, you're that guy. And David is cut to his heart. Listen. This is going to be a hard thing for some of you to hear. Listen closely. Sometimes God's not in a hurry to point out someone's sin until he gets them to a point where they'll hear it. We're in a hurry to point out everybody's sin as soon as we see it. Sometimes God says, yeah, I see it, but I'm waiting until my time because it'll be right and he'll respond or she'll respond appropriately. You don't say anything until I say to say something. We see in the book of John that Judas was stealing from the treasury. Do you think Jesus knew? But we don't have any record of him dealing with Judas about that issue. Do you see? Folks, we really believe that God's able to do his stuff. We can only do what he tells us to do, when he tells us to do, and we don't think he needs our help. God didn't convict David until he had gotten David to the point that he would see the depth of his sin. And David then writes this in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, you blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity in sin. My mother did conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being in the heart and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me then with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Look at verses uh, 16 and 17. For you don't delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You're not asking me to do anything except repent and turn to you for cleansing. You won't, won't be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what, folks? A broken spirit and a broken and contrite what? Heart. Oh, God, you won't despise that. Do you remember Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8? There's a courtroom seat in Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. And God has set up the courtroom and God's the prosecuting attorney and he's the judge. And he's declared Israel guilty. And their response was, what do you want us to do? Do you want me to sacrifice something? Do you want me to sacrifice or give 10,000 rivers of oil? And they even go to the extreme of saying, do you want me to sacrifice my firstborn son, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And we all know the rest. He has shown you, O oh man, what God requires of you, but to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Folks, that's what we need to do on a daily basis is to say, as David prayed, Lord, you search my heart. I'm going to encourage you to stop trying to examine yourself. How am I doing? Am I doing good? Am I not doing good? Actually, the only place in the Bible that the Bible says that you're to examine yourself is in 1 Corinthians 11 when it comes time to take the Lord's Supper. But you're to do it in such a way that you're examining how you're treating the body. That's what it was. The whole context of that passage is teaching that you are considering how you're treating the body because it was supposed to be a fellowship meal. Jesus died for us. Everywhere else, the scripture says, Lord, you show me my heart. David, I mean, Paul, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 4 said, I don't even judge myself. Folks, we spend too much time sitting around going, how am I doing? Am I sharing my faith enough? Am I working hard enough for Jesus? That sounds spiritual. It sounds really good. It's coming from the enemy. He's trying to mess you up. You won't even make a right assessment. You'll probably beat yourself up when God's not. Or you might think you're doing great when God's not pleased. But listen, why don't you humble yourself and say, Lord, if there's something in my heart, show it to me. And when you do, I want to give it to you. All along in the Old Testament, the scripture said that how we're cleansed is God blotting our sins out and him giving us a new heart. And all he wants from us is repentance. Go to Job chapter 33. You're in Psalm. Back up one book to Job 33. You want to see the gospel? It's right here. Look at verses 22 to 28. Let me set the stage for you. Elihu is speaking and he says that God speaks in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that he speaks is sometimes he puts us on a sickbed to get our attention. And verse 22 says this person that God's trying to speak to through the sickbed, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. If there be for him an angel, 
a mediator, one of a thousand, to, to declare to man what is right for him. And he's merciful to him. And this mediator says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it wasn't repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. That's the gospel, folks. There it is in the Old Testament. When man's due for hell, headed there, if there's a mediator, one, who will stand up and say, don't let him go to hell. I've made a ransom for him. Man prays to God and God accepts him. Man says, I sinned and I didn't do what was right, but God has forgiven me. Isn't that awesome? By the way, remember how Jesus said, woe unto him who leads these little ones to, to sin? Be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he'd be thrown into the depths of the sea. Um, let me ask you this question. Do you think the Apostle Paul might have led a few people in his life to cause them to sin? Um, I think the answer is yes. Because he was a blasphemer. He was a murderer. He, he, for the longest time, told everybody that Jesus stuff is of the devil. And he led a lot of people astray. Yet what was God's heart to him? He forgave him. That's why Paul said, I am the chief of sinners, but God chose to show his mercy and his grace through me, the worst of sinners. Two more passages of scripture. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Not by anything we do. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. By the way, did you all notice that I was just showing you from the law and the prophets that the, the law had been pointing to this righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. There it is again. God wasn't in a hurry to point out the sin. He waited until the time that it would take root. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We'll close with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 36 through 39. Peter's been preaching. Pentecost, full of the Spirit. All these people are listening. And he says, let the house of Israel therefore know. This is verse 36 of chapter 2. Let the, all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were what? They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness 
And he continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were, at, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were cut to the heart, and they responded, What should we do? And the answer was, Repent. Have that broken, contrite heart, and go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. That's what the baptism was back then, by the way. Nowadays, we have people pray a prayer. Back then, instead of praying the prayer, you were baptized. That was your profession of your faith. That was your saying, I need Jesus. You went and got baptized in the name of Jesus, which is also the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Don't get caught up in that whole mess. Folks, it's just simply this. We want to find out where does that sin temptation line change over? All that question does is show our hearts. We need to go and, if you haven't been saved, get the new heart from Jesus. And then he, through his spirit, will cause you to obey his commands. And I love 2 Thessalonians 3.5. I'll quote it until the day I die and probably keep quoting it for eternity. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. God's desire is that you just come to him and walk with him, and he takes care of the other stuff. Stop trying to stop sinning and focus on Jesus and watch how he makes this transformation take place. I love you. Have a Merry Christmas. Thanks for coming.